Chapter 4 of The Warlord of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Secret Tower. I have no stomach to narrate the monotonous events of the tedious days that Woola and I spent ferreting our way across the labyrinth of glass, through the dark and devious ways beyond that led beneath the valley door and golden cliffs to emerge at last upon the flank of the Oats Mountains, just above the valley of lost souls, that pitiful purgatory peopled by the poor unfortunates who dare not continue their abandoned pilgrimage to door or return to the various lands of the outer world from whence they came. Here the trail of Dejah Thoris abductors led along the mountain's base, across steep and rugged ravines by the side of appalling precipices, and sometimes out into the valley where we found fighting aplenty with the members of the various tribes that make up the population of this vale of hopelessness. But through it all we came at last to where the way led up a narrow gorge that grew steeper and more impracticable at every step, until before us loomed a mighty fortress buried beneath the side of an overhanging cliff. Here was the secret hiding place of Matai Shang, father of therns. Here, surrounded by a handful of the faithful, the Hecador of the ancient faith, who had once been served by millions of vassals and dependents, dispensed the spiritual words among the half-dozen nations of Barsoom that still clung tenaciously to their false and discredited religion. Darkness was just falling as we came in sight of the seemingly impregnable walls of this mountain stronghold, and lest we be seen, I drew back with Woola behind a jutting granite promontory into a clump of the hardy purple scrub that thrives upon the barren sides of oats. Here we lay until the quick transition from daylight to darkness had passed. Then I crept out to approach the fortress walls in search of a way within. Either through carelessness or overconfidence in the supposed inaccessibility of their hiding place, the triple-barred gate stood ajar. Beyond were a handful of guards laughing and talking over one of their incomprehensible Barsoomian games. I saw that none of the guardsmen had been of the party that accompanied Thurid and Matashan, and so, relying entirely upon my disguise, I walked boldly through the gateway and up to the third guard. The men stopped their game and looked up at me, but there was no sign of suspicion. Similarly, they looked at Woola, growling at my heel. Kaor, I said in true Martian greeting, and the warriors arose and saluted me. I have but just found my way hither from the golden cliffs, I continued, and seek audience with the Hecador Matai Shang, father of therns. Where may he be found? Follow me, said one of the guard, and, turning, led me across the outer courtyard toward a second buttressed wall. Why the apparent ease with which I seemingly deceived them did not rouse my suspicions, I know not unless it was that my mind was still so full of that fleeting glimpse of my beloved princess that there was room in it for naught else. Be that as it may, the fact is that I marched buoyantly behind my guide straight into the jaws of death. Afterward I learned that Thurn's spies had been aware of my coming for hours before I reached the hidden fortress. The gate had been purposely left ajar to tempt me on. 
the guards had been schooled well in their part of the conspiracy, and I, more like a schoolboy than a seasoned warrior, ran headlong into the trap. At the far side of the outer court, a narrow door led into the angle made by one of the buttresses with the wall. Here my guide produced a key and opened the way within. Then, stepping back, he motioned me to enter. Matai Shang is in the temple court beyond, he said, and, as Wula and I passed through, the fellow closed the door quickly upon us. The nasty laugh that came to my ears through the heavy planking of the door, after the lock clicked, was my first intimation that all was not as it should be. I found myself in a small circular chamber within the buttress. Before me a door opened, presumably upon the inner court beyond. For a moment I hesitated, all my suspicions now suddenly, though tardily, aroused. Then, with a shrug of my shoulders, I opened the door and stepped out into the glare of torches that lighted the inner court. Directly opposite me, a massive tower rose to a height of three hundred feet. It was of the strangely beautiful modern Bursumian style of architecture, its entire surface hand-carved in bold relief with intricate and fanciful designs. Thirty feet above the courtyard and overlooking it was a broad balcony, and there indeed was Matai Shang, and with him were Thurid and Fedor, Thuvia, and Dejah Thoris, the last two heavily ironed. A handful of Thern warriors stood just behind the little party. As I entered the enclosure, the eyes of those in the balcony were full upon me. An ugly smile distorted the cruel lips of Matai Shang. Thurid hurled a taunt at me and placed a familiar hand upon the shoulder of my princess. Like a tigress she turned upon him, striking the beast a heavy blow with the manacles upon her wrist. He would have struck back had not Matai Shang interfered. And then I saw that the two men were not over-friendly, for the manner of the fern was arrogant and domineering, as he made it plain to the firstborn that the princess of Helium was the personal property of the father of therns, and Thurid's bearing toward the ancient Hecador savored not at all of liking or respect. When the altercation in the balcony had subsided, Matai Shang turned again to me. You have earned a more ignoble death than now lies within our weakened power to inflict upon you but that the death you die to-night may be doubly bitter, know you that when you have passed, your widow becomes the wife of Matai Shang, Hecador of the Holy Therns, for a Martian year. At the end of that time, as you know, she shall be discarded, as is the law among us, but not as is usual to lead a quiet and honoured life as high priestess of some hallowed shrine. Instead... Dejah Thoris, princess of Helium, shall become the plaything of my lieutenants, perhaps of thy most hated enemy Thurid, the Black Dator. As he ceased speaking, he awaited in silence, evidently for some outbreak of rage upon my part, something that would have added to the spice of his revenge, but I did not give him the satisfaction that he craved. Instead, I did the one thing of all others that might rouse his anger and increase his hatred of me, for I knew that if I died, Dejah Thoris too would find a way to die before they could heap further tortures or indignities upon her. 
of all the holy of holies which the thern venerates and worships none is more revered than the yellow wig which covers his bald pate and next thereto comes the circlet of gold and the great diadem whose scintillant rays mark the attainment of the tenth cycle and knowing this i removed the wig and circlet from my head tossing them carelessly upon the flagging of the cord then i wiped my feet upon the yellow tresses and as a groan of rage arose from the balcony i spat full upon the holy diadem matai shang went livid with anger but upon the lips of thurid i could see a grim smile of amusement for to him these things were not holy so lest he should derive too much amusement from my act i cried and thus did i with the holies of isis goddess of life eternal ere i threw isis herself to the mob that once had worshipped her to be torn to pieces in her own temple that put an end to thurid's grinning for he had been high in the favour of isis let us have an end to this blaspheming he cried turning to the father of therns matai shang rose and leaning over the edge of the balcony gave voice to the weird call that i had heard from the lips of the priests upon the tiny balcony upon the face of the golden cliffs overlooking the valley door when in times past they called the fearsome white apes and the hideous plant men to the feast of victims floating down the broad bosom of the mysterious ice toward the cilian infested waters of the lost sea of chorus let loose the death he cried and immediately a dozen doors in the base of the tower swung open and a dozen grim and terrible banths sprang into the arena this was not the first time that i had faced the ferocious barsoomian lion but never had i been pitted single-handed against a full dozen of them even with the assistance of the fierce woola there could be but a single outcome for so unequal a struggle for a moment the beasts hesitated beneath the brilliant glare of the torches but presently their eyes becoming accustomed to the light fell upon woola and me and with bristling manes and deep-throated roars they advanced lashing their tawny sides with their powerful tails in the brief interval of life that was left to me i shot a last parting glance toward my dejathoris her beautiful face was set in an expression of horror and as my eyes met hers she extended both arms toward me as struggling with the guards who now held her she endeavoured to cast herself from the balcony into the pit beneath that she might share my death with me then as the banths were about to close upon me she turned and buried her dear face in her arms suddenly my attention was drawn toward thuvia of tarth the beautiful girl was leaning far over the edge of the balcony her eyes bright with excitement in another instant the banths would be upon me but i could not force my gaze from the features of the red girl for i knew that her expression meant anything but the enjoyment of the grim tragedy that would so soon be enacted below her there was some deeper hidden meaning which i sought to solve for an instant i thought of relying on my earthly muscles and agility to escape the banths and reach the balcony which i could easily have done but i could not bring myself to desert the faithful woola and leave him to die alone beneath the cruel fangs of the hungry banths 
That is not the way upon Barsoom, nor was it ever the way of John Carter. Then the secret of Thuvia's excitement became apparent, as from her lips there issued the purring sound I had heard once before. That time, that within the golden cliffs she called the fierce bants about her, and led them as a shepherdess might lead her flock of meek and harmless sheep. At the first note of that soothing sound, the bants halted in their tracks, and every fierce head went high as the beasts sought the origin of the familiar call. Presently they discovered the red girl in the balcony above them, and, turning, roared out their recognition and their greeting. Guards sprang to drag Thuvia away, but ere they had succeeded she had hurled a volley of commands at the listening brutes, and, as one, they turned and marched back into their dens. "'You need not fear them now, John Carter,' cried Thuvia, before they could silence her. "'Those bants will never harm you now, nor Wula, either.' It was all I cared to know. There was naught to keep me from that balcony now, and with a long running leap I sprang far aloft until my hands grasped its lowest sill. In an instant all was wild confusion. Matai Shang shrank back. Thurid sprang forward with drawn sword to cut me down. Again Dejah Thoris wielded her heavy irons and fought him back. Then Matai Shang grasped her about the waist and dragged her away through a door leading within the tower. For an instant Thurid hesitated, and then, as though fearing that the father of Therns would escape him with the princess of Helium, he too dashed from the balcony in their wake. Fedor alone retained her presence of mind. Two of the guards she ordered to bear away Thuvia of Tarth. The others she commanded to remain and prevent me from following. Then she turned toward me. John Carter, she cried, for the last time I offer you the love of Fedor, daughter of the holy Hecador. Accept, and your princess shall be returned to the court of her grandfather, and you shall live in peace and happiness. Refuse, and the fate that my father has threatened shall fall upon Dejah Thoris. You cannot save her now, for by this time they have reached a place where even you may not follow. Refuse, and naught can save you, for though the way to the last stronghold of the Holy Therns was made easy for you, the way hence hath been made impossible. What say you? You knew my answer, Fedor, I replied before ever you spoke. Make way, I cried to the guards. For John Carter, Prince of Helium, would pass. With that, I leaped over the low baluster that surrounded the balcony, and with drawn longsword faced my enemies. There were three of them, but Fedor must have guessed what the outcome of the battle would be, for she turned and fled from the balcony the moment she saw that I would have none of her proposition. The three guardsmen did not wait for my attack. Instead, they rushed me, the three of them simultaneously and it was that which gave me an advantage, for they fouled one another in the narrow precincts of the balcony, so that the foremost of them stumbled full upon my blade at the first onslaught. The red stain upon my point roused to its full the old bloodlust of the fighting man that has ever been so strong within my breast, so that my blade flew through the air with a swiftness and deadly accuracy that threw the two remaining therns into wild despair. When at last the sharp steel found the heart of one of them, the other turned to flee, and, guessing that his steps would lead him along the way taken by those I sought, I let him keep ever far enough ahead 
to think that he was safely escaping my sword. Through several inner chambers he raced until he came to a spiral runway. Up this he dashed, I in close pursuit. At the upper end we came out into a small chamber, the walls of which were blank, except for a single window overlooking the slopes of oats and the valley of lost souls beyond. Here the fellow tore frantically at what appeared to be but a piece of the blank wall opposite the single window. In an instant I guessed that it was a secret exit from the room, and so I paused that he might have an opportunity to negotiate it, for I cared nothing to take the life of this poor servitor. All I craved was a clear road in pursuit of Dejathoris, my long-lost princess. But try as he would, the panel would yield neither to cunning nor force, so that eventually he gave it up and turned to face me. Go thy way, Thurn, I said to him, pointing toward the entrance to the runway, up which we had but just come. I have no quarrel with you, nor do I crave your life. Go. For answer, he sprang upon me with his sword, and so suddenly at that, that I was like to have gone down before his first rush. So there was nothing for it but to give him what he sought, and that as quickly as might be, that I might not be delayed too long in this chamber, while Matai Shang and Thurid made way with Dejathoris and Thuvia of Tarth. The fellow was a clever swordsman, resourceful and extremely tricky. In fact, he seemed never to have heard that there existed such a thing as a code of honor, for he repeatedly outraged a dozen Barsumian fighting customs, that an honorable man would rather die than ignore. He even went so far as to snatch his holy wig from his head and throw it in my face, so as to blind me for a moment while he thrust at my unprotected breast. When he thrust, however, I was not there, for I had fought with therns before, and while none had ever resorted to precisely that same expedient, I knew them to be the least honorable and most treacherous fighters upon Mars, and so was ever on the alert for some new and devilish subterfuge when I was engaged with one of their race. But at length he overdid the thing, for drawing his short sword he hurled it, javelin-wise, at my body, at the same instant rushing upon me with his long sword. A single sweeping circle of my own blade caught the flying weapon and hurled it clattering against the far wall, and then, as I sidestepped my antagonist's impetuous rush, I let him have my point full in the stomach as he hurtled by. Clear to the hilt my weapon passed through his body, and with a frightful shriek he sank to the floor, dead. Halting only for the brief instant that was required to wrench my sword from the carcass of my late antagonist, I sprang across the chamber to the blank wall beyond, through which the thern had attempted to pass. Here I sought for the secret of its lock, but all to no avail. In despair I tried to force the thing, but the cold, unyielding stone might well have laughed at my futile, puny endeavors. In fact, I could have sworn that I caught the faint suggestion of taunting laughter from beyond the baffling panel. In disgust I desisted from my useless efforts and stepped to the chamber's single window. The slopes of oats and the distant valley of lost souls held nothing to compel my interest then, but, towering far above me, the tower's carved wall riveted my keenest attention. Somewhere within that massive pile was Dejathoris. Above me I could see windows, 
There, possibly, lay the only way by which I could reach her. The risk was great, but not too great when the fate of a world's most wondrous woman was at stake. I glanced below. A hundred feet beneath me, jagged granite boulders at the brink of a frightful chasm upon which the tower abutted, and, if not upon the boulders, then at the chasm's bottom lay death, should a foot slip but once, or clutching fingers loose their hold for the fraction of an instant. But there was no other way, and with a shrug, which I must admit was half-shudder, I stepped to the window's outer sill and began my perilous ascent. To my dismay, I found that unlike the ornamentation upon most heliometric structures, the edges of the carvings were quite generally rounded, so that at best my every hold was most precarious. Fifty feet above me commenced a series of projecting cylindrical stones some six inches in diameter. These apparently circled the tower at six-foot intervals in bands six feet apart, and, as each stone cylinder protruded some four or five inches beyond the surface of the other ornamentation, they presented a comparatively easy mode of ascent, could I but reach them. Laboriously I climbed toward them by way of some windows which lay below them, for I hoped that I might find ingress to the tower through one of these, and thence an easier avenue along which to prosecute my search. At times, so slight was my hold upon the rounded surfaces of the carving's edges, that a sneeze, a cough, or even a slight gust of wind would have dislodged me and sent me hurtling to the depths below. But finally I reached a point where my fingers could just clutch the sill of the lowest window, and I was on the point of breathing a sigh of relief when the sound of voices came to me from above, through the open window. He can never solve the secret of that lock, the voice was Matashan's. Let us proceed to the hangar above, that we may be far to the south before he finds another way, should that be possible. All things seem possible to that vile callot, replied another voice, which I recognized as Theoret's. Then let us make haste, said Matashan. But to be doubly sure, I will leave two who shall patrol this runway. Later they may follow us upon another flyer, overtaking us at Kale. My upstretched fingers never reached the window sill. At the first sound of the voices I drew back my hand, and clung there to my perilous perch, flattened against the perpendicular wall, scarce daring to breathe. What a horrible position indeed in which to be discovered by Thurid! He had but to lean from the window to push me with his sword's point into eternity. Presently the sound of the voices became fainter, and once again I took up my hazardous ascent, now more difficult since more circuitous, for I must climb so as to avoid the windows. Matai-Shang's reference to the hangar and the flyers indicated that my destination lay nothing short of the roof of the tower and toward this seemingly distant goal I set my face. The most difficult and dangerous part of the journey was accomplished at last, and it was with relief that I felt my fingers close about the lowest of the stone cylinders. It is true that these projections were too far apart to make the balance of the ascent anything of a sinecure, but I had at least always within my reach 
a point of safety to which I might cling in case of accident. Some ten feet below the roof, the wall inclines slightly inward, possibly a foot in the last ten feet, and here the climbing was indeed immeasurably easier, so that my fingers soon clutched the eaves. As I drew my eyes above the level of the tower's top, I saw a flyer all but ready to rise. Upon her deck were Matai Shang, Fedor, Dejathoris, Thuvia of Tarth, and a few Thern warriors, while near her was Thurid in the act of clambering aboard. He was not ten paces from me, facing in the opposite direction, and what cruel freak of fate should have caused him to turn about just as my eyes topped the roof's edge, I may not even guess. But turn he did, and when his eyes met mine, his wicked face lighted with a malignant smile as he leaped toward me, where I was hastening to scramble to the secure footing of the roof. Dejathoris must have seen me at the same instant, for she screamed a useless warning, just as Thurid's foot, swinging in a mighty kick, landed full in my face. Like a felled ox, I reeled and tumbled backward over the tower's side. End of chapter 4 Recording by Thomas Copeland